Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Well, welcome everybody to Fitness for Consumption. I'm Paul Juris, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon, and you are listening to You've Got Nerve. So this is sort of a play on words. Uh, We really want to get into an interesting and and very popular topic, which is neural adaptation. And um, for that, we've enlisted the help of a very special guest, Gigi Why don't you tell us who that is? Sure. So we are thrilled and no hyperbole here, PJ. We are really thrilled to welcome to the podcast, highly regarded neuromuscular physiologist, Dr. David Bain. So Dave is a university research professor in the School of Human Kinetics and Recreation at Memorial University in Newfoundland, Canada. He specializes in neuromotor function, resistance training, something called metastability, which we'll discuss in the podcast, and stretching flexibility. Hmm. He's a member of the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology and the European College of Sport Sciences. He's received the NSCA, W.J. Kramer Outstanding Sport Scientist Award, and the CSEP Honor Award. With over 300 publications 300. and 20,000 citations. You Amazing. That right, folks. Amazing. And if you're not duly impressed yet, just wait for what he reveals about himself. So get ready. Get ready, indeed. It is very, very much our honor to have Dave Bame on the show with us. Um, and before we do, let me talk a little bit about what we're going to discuss with him. First, we're going to go to the beginning, which is really where Dave began his research career in neuromotor research. And so we've all heard the term neural adaptation, but, you know, what does that really mean? So prepare to hear about it from the master himself, because he's going to talk all about neural adaptation. Um, Then one of the most influential studies over the last three decades was Dave's paper with Digby Sale comparing the effects of intended movement velocity on velocity-specific strength gains. If you've been in our field for any amount of time, you've read or at least heard about that study. It is a landmark paper. And we're going to hear all about it from the author, which is really exciting. Uh, We're going to talk about specificity, and that has some really significant training implications. And then lastly, we're going to weigh in on the role of coaches and trainers in the realm of skill acquisition. What should we be doing and how should we be doing it? So I trust our listeners are as excited as we are. Let's just jump right in. So David Bame, we are so excited to have you on our show. I mean, we've been looking forward to this for a very long time. And, you know, just to get started... In case our listeners are not familiar with you, which probably means they came from another planet, (laughs) um, would you just take a moment and tell them about yourself? How how did you get into this field? Uh, What pathways did you take? What sparked your interest? And how did you come to be sitting with us here today? Sure. Well, to start at the present, I'm a uh, 
termed a university research professor at the Memorial University of Newfoundland. So we're, uh, for those who are uh, geographically um, deficient, uh, that's a province on the <laughs> eastern coast of Canada. We're as it's close to Europe as you can get. Definitely. So um, small, small little province in terms of population, but uh, um, you know we're we're quite quite a size in terms of uh, land mass. But nonetheless, I've been here for uh, 25 years, and I teach uh, uh, exercise physiology and advanced exercise physiology. Uh, taught a lot of different courses over my time here, but uh, that's what I presently do. So how did I end up here? Well. Um, I did my university at the uh, University of Ottawa uh, in Ontario, capital Canada, and I was a football player, university football player, also played junior hockey, uh, played some baseball as well. So I was a quite a active, uh, competitive athlete. And I always had in the back of my head that, um, you know, maybe I could have a pro career. And so, um, and whether that was going to be uh, football or hockey, I wasn't sure. And so uh, hockey, I made it to a certain um, level and uh, didn't uh, get past junior. Played with a number of professional hockey players, but they were better than I was. And uh, But in football, I progressed on and um, captained the football team. I got drafted into the Canadian Football League, the professional league up here. And mm-hmm. I uh, played for a whole month. So, <laughs> a whole month, yeah. So I went to, went to the training camp. I played one game. Uh, in fact, I caught three passes. I didn't drop a pass. I had an average gain, seven and a half yards each. And I thought I was on my way to the Football Hall of Fame in Canton. <laughs> were you uh, a receiver, I, tight end? What, what position? No, I, I was a running back. Oh, so running they, back. Um, yeah. So they threw me a couple of flare passes and they threw me a screen and uh, my career was over. <laughs> which is longer than most people's right <laughs> well it's just yeah not not everybody gets drafted so uh, and gets to play a game so so, so you got that, that was better than the average you got and cut? i got cut i got cut wow. yes stakes so my, are high my, there my uh, my problem was that i'm i'm um well at that time five foot eleven 205 pounds uh which is okay. a you know good size running back if you run the 40 and four four Mm-hmm. But I didn't run the 40 and 4.4. I ran the 40 and like 4.9, 5 flat sort of thing. So I wasn't a speedster. And so Four without hours, that, huh? yeah, that's right. <laughs> so without that speed, um, you know, I just didn't have it to make it in the, uh, in the, uh, in the pros. So I had to find something else to do. And so then I started coaching football and hockey at the university level and, and the university I was at, they, they were cutting back. And since I was the head hockey coach, Unfortunately, they uh, they cut the hockey program. I had to find another job. I managed an athletic club in uh, Nova Scotia. Didn't like the administration, and and so then I, I quit that. I decided, what am I going to do with my life? And and I thought, well, you know, I enjoy teaching because at one time I thought I was going to be a phys ed teacher, but I just didn't like adolescent kids. <laughs> a bit of a pain in the ass. So I didn't do that. But I did like coaching. I did like the aspect of teaching. And so I realized, well, you know, if I had the opportunity to teach, you know, semi-adults, college-age people, um, and I don't have to, to give them detentions for chewing gum, and it has to do with sports science, which I love because I'm an athlete, that might be my career. And so then I went on and, and, and did my master's at the McMaster University with Digby Sale, who's a very well-known, right. legendary researcher, and now Absolutely. retired. Um, then I went on to um, McGill University in Montreal. Uh, got my PhD there, and then uh, moved to a memorial, which uh, brought me here. So that therefore leads to the next question. Okay, that's your your time path, but what about your research? And so my research, I would call myself, well, I've I've been called a lot of things and some of them not so polite, but um, uh, an applied neuromuscular physiologist. And so I look at a lot of different types of responses to exercise, and whether it's resistance training or it's um, velocity specificity of resistance training, instability, stretching, foam rolling, anything that can um, perhaps improve the performance. Because going back, I didn't make it as a pro. So my big concern once I passed over that um, big failure in my life was, you know, why wasn't I fast enough? What could I do to make myself faster? And since I couldn't make it, Therefore, what could I do to help others to train better? 
And when I think back to when I was a university student, there was no strength coach at our university. All I did was what the other guys did. And now mm -hmm. thinking back to it, I did a lot of stupid things. And so in terms it's of my training, all, right? yeah. yeah. So now, now I know a lot better and, and hopefully, you know, a lot of athletes and coaches around the world can read my material and hopefully improve how their athletes do. And, and in fact, you know, just the average individual can improve their, their health and their fitness as well. You know, thank you for that. It, it's, you mentioned that Digby Sale is legendary and, and absolutely, you know, he was one of the authors that I was really um, locked into when I was going through graduate school myself. But let, let's say, don't sell yourself short because your work from my perspective is equally legendary. And, you know, we're going to get into that. And I'm glad that you mentioned the specificity part, because I think we're going to open with discussions around that and around neural adaptation and intention and things like that. So just to kick this thing off, you know, neural adaptation is sort of a catchphrase that a lot of people in the fitness industry use. And I think a lot of folks just like to throw that term around because it sounds impressive, um, but it is used and not necessarily well understood. And I think it's a very complex subject. And I, we could probably spend the next two or three hours talking about neural adaptation. But if you could just think about it for one second and give our listeners maybe two or three takeaways, what does it really mean? When we're talking about neural adaptation, how would you define that? What is it we're looking at? And what are the basic implications for working with whether they're athletes or just people in a fitness setting? Sure. So when we talk about neural adaptation, often people think of the ability to maximally activate a muscle. So I'm going to call that the quantity. You know, mm -hmm. how much muscle can we activate? And of course, that would be really important when it comes to being able to exert the greatest forces. You know, if you want to do a uh, isometric um, elbow flexion or a, a knee extension, you want to be able to activate every single muscle that you can, muscle fiber that you can, and you need to be able to get those motor units firing to get that high recruitment. But you've also got the quality of movement. So you may be able to activate all your muscle fibers. Not everybody can, and it depends on the muscle. For example, if I was to test almost anybody, uh, most of them would be probably able to close to or maximally activate their, uh, their plantar flexors, their calf muscles. But if I tested them on their quadriceps, most people are around like 85%, 90%. They're missing about 10% full activation. But when you're doing an athletic movement, if you are Djokovic, Nadal, or Federer, you don't hit a ball with 100% maximal activation. You've got to be coordinated. So you've got to turn on a, a muscle so that it moves at the fastest uh, controllable rate possible mm -hmm. without turning on antagonist muscles or inappropriate muscles. So it's the quality uh, and the motor control of turning those, uh, those um, uh, muscles on and the motor units on as well. So neuroadaptations to a lot of people say, okay, we got to turn everything up, turn that dial on. When I'm, when I'm teaching, I often uh, compare our neuromuscular system to a stereo system and you've got an amplifier and you've got a volume switch. Well, you can, if you had a big, big amplifier and you turned it on, you'd go from zero to hundred percent right away and and you'd be walking around like a robot like on off on off but if you've got a volume switch you can go from like number one to two to three to four to five to ten and you can make minute incremental adjustments to your force so if i want to make a i'm playing table tennis and i want to make a little drop shot i need to have a lot of fine motor control i don't need to turn on every motor muscle un, uh, sorry motor unit in my system mm -hmm. But if, if I'm a, um, a defensive lineman in the NFL and I'm exploding off the line, then I got to turn it on maximal, but still, I've still got to have control. And I also want to turn it on again, in terms of the rate of force development. So you not only want to turn them all on to get maximum force, but you have to control the firing frequency, the rate coding, how many signals do you send down? And the rate of force development is dependent upon the firing frequency. So there's a lot of different aspects. So it's not just turn it on and, and get the maximum force. It depends on what you're doing. 
So, you know, we've mentioned, I think, in a previous conversation we had, and, and Gigi and I have talked about this in previous podcasts, it's a common and favorite phrase of mine is that more is not necessarily better, right? Better is better. And so I think that's what you're implying here. And by the way, if people are continuously applying maximum output, a fatigue has to become a factor here. So there needs to be some level of efficiency in order to be able to perform, especially in an athletic endeavor. I mean, if you want to make it through the fourth quarter, you, unless you recover incredibly well, there's got to be some modulation and control of that output or else we're all going to drop. Absolutely. And if you think, again, going back to, let's say, NFL football or CFL football, in my case, when a receiver runs his route, he doesn't run at 100% to start off with. He's running at 85, 90, 95% because he wants to have a bit more on the accelerator so he can accelerate past the uh, the cornerback or the inside mm -hmm. defensive back. So nobody starts off at 100%. If you're watching NHL hockey and you're watching Connor McDavid, the fastest skater in the NHL, again, he looks amazingly fast, but he's going so fast and all of a sudden he goes faster. Mm -hmm. Again, he leaves a little bit in the tank so that he can go and accelerate even more. So it's important to have, like I say, that modulation. You want to be near maximal, but again, you need to have that, that extra spurt that you can, you can turn on at the end. And you, need to. you also need to stop and absorb forces very quickly and change direction in professional sports. So we're, Absolutely. we're we're sort of talking, and you you hinted at it a little bit, Dave, about rate coding. And so ultimately, the way we produce these movements is a combination of recruitment and rate coding. And can you just talk a little bit more exactly how those two things sort of intersect and how we actually use both of those for, to fine tune these kind of movements? Yeah. So again, there's the, the Henneman size principle. If you've ever taken an exercise physiology course, uh, could you uh, just, I don't know. Most of our listeners probably wouldn't know what that is. So I know. Just, yeah. yeah. So the Henneman science size principle says that you recruit the slow twitch fibers first. And of course they're the ones that have the lower forces, but they also have the, the, uh, the more fine afferent or the more sensitivity. And then as you go, those are low threshold uh, motor units. And then as you want more force, you go to the fast twitch motor units. They're harder to activate. So the example I always give in, in my class is if I want, uh, when my, my daughter was a baby, if I wanted to stroke her cheek, I would want to just turn on slow twitch motor units because when you turn on one slow twitch motor unit, you typically add uh, anywhere from um, uh, five to 50 grams of force. All right. Whereas when you're turning on a fast twitch motor unit, you're starting at 50 grams of force and going up to 150 grams. So if I was stroking my baby's face and I turn on fast twitch, I'd end up slapping her in the head. All right. I want to be soft. So again, we go back to different sports where you need to, you know, to um, have a drop shot in, in tennis or a, a short jumper in basketball. You're not going to turn on all those motor units. So we have to realize um, which motor units we want. Do we want motor units to give us fine motor control? And if we turn on the slow twitch, they're going to give us small increments in force, and we're going to get lots of feedback because they have more afferent feedback. Whereas the fast twitch, again, a, a defensive lineman in the football doesn't need as much afferent feedback. He's just going to explode. And therefore, he needs to... Um, use the science principle and try and activate those fast twitch motor units. But every time you turn on a new motor unit, it doesn't turn on full, full, um, full extent. So if you turn on any motor unit, they usually start firing at about six Hertz, about six stimuli per second. Mm -hmm. And then your slow twitch go from about six Hertz to a maximum of like 20 Hertz. And so you can take that small little slow twitch and you have really fine force and make it a bit more, all right? Maybe when I'm touching my baby's face, she doesn't even feel it. So I'm gonna turn up the rate coding a bit more and oh yeah, and then she goes, oh, baby, daddy, 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 whatever. So, but uh, when you turn on a fast twitch motor unit, it goes from six Hertz and it can go up to 50 or 60 Hertz. So it's got a wider range in order to get to the top. And in fact, if you do a ballistic contraction, so you're serving in tennis, you're throwing a baseball from, from left field, uh, you're doing any of these ballistic kind of motions, 
the motor neuron will turn up to 100 to 120 hertz. Mm -hmm. And the faster it fires, the faster is the rate of force development. But then you've got to worry about injuring yourself. Because if you're going ballistic, you know, think of a ballistic rocket. They're called ICBMs, Intercontinental Ballistic Rockets. What do they do? They come off the, um, uh, the rocket and they go out and the scientists have figured out how much power we need to have that ballistic missile go into orbit. It doesn't keep on firing all the time. And you do the same thing. A pitcher is going to throw the baseball and they're going to do a kinetic chain. The kinetic chain is going to travel to the shoulder. We're going to exert a force. But you get the greatest speed if you relax your arm. You don't contract your arm. But you need to turn on the antagonist before the end of the range of motion or else your shoulder is just going to keep on going. So again, going back to the quality of movement, I have to know when to turn on my agonist muscle, the muscle that's going to do the work. I have to know when to turn on my synergist muscles, the ones, the muscles that are going to help me do that work. And then I have to know when to turn on and off my antagonist muscles to protect myself. Again, if I was doing, I'm trying to think of, of some, I'm playing piano. If I'm playing the piano, I need the antagonist muscles to help me to control how far I'm going to move my fingers as well. So they all work in concert. And then by, by manipulating the, um, the recruitment and the rate coding will allow me to also manipulate how fast I'm going to, uh, to move or how fast the force development is going to be. Mm. You know, there's a point in that process, if I'm not mistaken, in which we shift from what we would refer to as spatial coding, meaning how many different motor units we recruit in order to create that force trajectory versus rate coding, meaning pinging the same motor units over and over and over again. So there's a slight shift in the way the system, the nervous system is controlling that behavior. Is there any specific point at which we might shift? And then from more of a practical perspective, because you know, this is interesting. And I think some people may be scratching their heads saying, what the heck are these guys talking about? So from a practical perspective, what might that mean in terms of what we do with somebody in the gym and how we manage that process? Okay. Well, of course we can't consciously control whether we're turning on a slow twitch or fast twitch. So right. often we, uh, when you read the research, you talk about, um, internal cues and external cues and, um, what most people have found is the external cues are better. So internal cues, for example, would be if I want to um, oh, um, do an elbow, uh, a biceps curl, the internal cue would be to think about what's happening inside my muscle and to recruit and rate code and increase firing frequency. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work as well as just thinking about that barbell or that dumbbell and moving the, uh, the dumbbell. Because when you think about the external cue, then what happens internally happens automatically. And so uh, this might be a good segue to my velocity specificity research where we looked at the intent to maximally activate. And what we found was that in the past, the research said, well, in order to get power, to get uh, force at high speeds, you had to work out at high speeds, you know, training specificity. But we were thinking, well, when you're working at high speeds, you can't use high forces. You know, right. you, can't, you can't lift heavy weights at high speeds. So right. is, it, is it possible to get high forces at high speeds by manipulating what the intent is, by trying to get that firing frequency high? So what we did was we had, for 16 weeks, we had people train, and we had one leg that would... Uh, was on an isokinetic dynamometer, like a Cybex machine. And we would have them pull it up as fast as they could. So do dorsiflexion as fast as they could. So, excuse me, their intent was to explosively contract their uh, tibialis anterior muscle. And then the, the foot moved fast. The other leg, we had it set up so there was an isometric traction. So it was zero velocity. But still, they had to think about exploding into the Cybex machine. So in this case, the old paradigm would say that the foot that moved fastest is the one that would get the force at high speeds. The one that was mm -hmm. isometric would only gain force at slow speeds. It didn't matter what your brain was thinking. 
But what mm-hmm. we found was that both legs had the greatest gains in force or strength at high speeds. So it was the brain that was more important than the speed of the foot. And so it was the intent to explode that allowed us to get power. And so that means that we were always sending down a high frequency signal that taught our tibialis anterior muscles to explode and provide that kind of force. Yeah, so let, let's dig in a bit more to that study because it's really a landmark study. And so um, unfortunately what happens in the fitness industry a lot is that someone will read an abstract of a study and look at one thing and then apply this study to every context they think suits their needs. And so there are some people who I know actually that um, they're not necessarily quoting your study, but certainly taking the spirit of it and saying, well, this study showed that high velocity movement is not necessary to um, create that sort of adaptation. So therefore, um, dynamic movement just isn't necessary. Like I can do all of my training isometrically and get the same benefits. And so one thing PJ and I spoke about on a, on one of our earlier episodes is, is this idea of substrates and substrates are like developing like what you're like type two muscle fibers and developing aerobic capacity. And, and so, um, I'm first, I'm curious to hear your perspective on people that would look at your study and take it to such an extreme. And on the other hand, um, so the way I would look at something like that is that neurally that may be true, but if my ankle, if I'm a professional football player, my ankle is going to be exposed to a grass field and it's going to be pronating and supinating and, you know, stepping on people and all sorts of unstable surfaces that, I need to develop this, like the tendon strength, the, like just my, my ankle getting stressed into those positions, you know, that stress over time, either it'll tear something or like those tendons will get strong enough that they can actually deal with those kind of forces. And if I only trained isometrically, even though I might get a very similar neural adaptation, I'm not going to get the same tissue adaptation. So just curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So of course you can't answer every aspect of a uh, of research in, in one study so what we want to look at that is, right? <laughs> what, you Imagine. can't win the nobel prize with one study <laughs> well maybe if you're einstein but in fact einstein didn't even win the nobel prize i don't think but nonetheless you're right remember i was talking about how slow twitch fibers get more afferent feedback than fast twitch fibers well if we want to do something and we want to look at quantity and quality so we were looking at pretty well quantity. We were just looking at the ability to move that very simple uniarticular joint, the ankle joint, and how fast could you dorsiflex it. So we found, of course, with intent, you could, you could uh, um, exert forces at high, at high speeds just by thinking about exploding. But it's not a very coordinated movement. So if I was an athlete and it's the off season and I want to develop my strength and my power, then I would be would be doing movements that were explosive against high weights. Um, and even though I'm moving slow, I develop power. But as I got closer to the season, I've got to be able to improve the quality of my movement and take that power that I developed in the weight room and put it onto the field or onto the ice or onto the court. And now, like I said before, you've got to learn when to turn on and off the antagonist when you're doing your jump shot. You got to learn to turn on and off the antagonist and the and synergist when you're you're cutting on the soccer field. You're not going to learn that in the weight room doing explosive squats or deadlifts. So you've got to take, you know, if you've got a periodized training program in the off season and it's a general strength phase, you've got to take what we did in that program and apply it. And then as you get closer to the season, start doing your plyometrics or your agility or your sprints or whatever um, and stability, which we might talk about later, and then be able to apply that. So you're getting that kind of feedback that you need. So you know qualitatively when to turn things on and off from the base, the fundamentals that you got in the off season. Yeah, there and there are a couple of other things, thoughts that I have along these lines, because in in my 
research in the past and looking at this phenomenon, you know, we talk about something called the triphasic EMG pattern, right? So triphasic pattern, for those of our listeners that are unfamiliar with it, when we move the agonist muscle, the muscle that's responsible for initiating the motion, that turns on. And then at some point, as you just mentioned, the antagonist has to kick in in order to decelerate it. And then at the end of the movement, the agonist fires one last time just to create some stability in the joint. And what we know is that- Or or to correct the movement. Or to correct it if necessary. Thank you. And so what we know is when the intention to move quickly is high, even in an isometric state, we still see a triphasic EMG pattern emerge. We still see the antagonist kick in 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 a high velocity isometric contraction. But here's the thing. When we talk about that neural adaptation, yes, we are evoking a certain neuromotor pattern in order to create those combined contractions, but the inertial characteristics of that are different from what you just explained, cutting on a field, you know, moving on a tennis court. So now inertia has to kick in. So the antagonist is being exposed to something very, very different from what it would see in this controlled isometric state. And so the carryover to performance in those dynamic activities is not going to be as significant because the biomechanics have changed, so to speak. Um, So, you know, I think that's something for our listeners to consider. And then there's one other thing, and we had talked about this before. And what I mentioned earlier was that all of the research that I can recall that looks at velocity specificity and motor activity, Moshe Solomon now, and some of those people in in that area, all of that work was done isokinetically. And the thing about these isokinetic studies is that when you're moving, let's say you're setting the isokinetic device to 90 degrees per second, and you're trying to move it as quickly as you can, the mechanical regulation is 90 degrees per second. You can't move faster than the setting on the machine, but the intention is to move at a higher rate. And that's what really struck me about that landmark study that you did was that it sort of turns all that research on its head because we can't necessarily look at specificity with an isokinetic device because in fact, the intention is not specific. So what I like to do is say, or if somebody's doing a squat, there's a difference in intention between doing it as a super slow movement versus doing it as either a normal velocity or a higher velocity movement. Now I'm actually applying this intent in controlling these movements in different ways. And I think then I will see significantly different outcomes. Absolutely. And, and so, as you said, with the, uh, um, the triphasic, you know, when we're doing an isometric uh, velocity, high velocity intent, <clears throat> we're probably aiming more at the, the the initial agonist. Although, as you mentioned, there is an antagonist contraction, but it's responding to this isometric situation. Mm-hmm. So, as I said to, uh, to 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 Greg, that you know, when we get back on the field, then we have to retrain the antagonist and the synergist in order to uh, to be able to do that. To give you a good example of uh, training specificity. And again, another one I use in my class all the time is back around the time I was uh, drafted in, in uh, 1979. In 1978, if anybody's old enough to remember that, um, Lou Ferrigno, mm-hmm. the Hulk, was signed by the Toronto Argonauts of the Canadian Football League. Really? Not that many, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Not <laughs> many people know this. Because wow. his career lasted about as long as my career did. <laughs> <laughs> So they signed up. Why? Because he turned green in the middle of the play. And <laughs> Someone made him angry. Away. I guess. Yeah. I know. And, and, and Toronto is a, wears blue uniform. So it just. <laughs> <flashed> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but the story is, is that they, they signed him and they signed him for two reasons. One being he was huge, of course. You know, I think he's like six, five and yeah. probably that time, 280 pounds. He's strong. So you'd think that he'd be a good football player just based on the size and strength. The second thing, of course, he's the Hulk. So there's a big marketing aspect to it. Everybody wants to come and see the Hulk play football. So they got him on the field for the training camp and he was terrible. So why was he terrible? He's big and he's strong, but he's not powerful. Mm. Because what does a bodybuilder typically do? They do, they want force contractions to be 
you know, um, held through a long period of time, put mm -hmm. time under tension on the muscle, break down some protein, have the muscles hypertrophy to the greatest extent possible, but they don't explode into their contractions. Right. And then of course, they don't take, even if they did explode, they didn't, you know, the Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, didn't play football before. <laughs> right. So, you know, if you haven't played football before, you don't know how to explode out of the, the stance. You don't know the, the movements. So just being big and strong isn't good enough. And so, you know, he'd be a good example of what you do in the general phase in order to get strong, but he never did the next. Well, of course, he probably never planned on playing football in the first place until they offered him a big signing bonus. But... He was not training specific. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, you know, Olympic lifters, by and large, are not the most, don't have, I think people expect an Olympic lifter to have a bodybuilder type physique, and by and large, they most certainly don't. They, some of them look Technique. like, Technique yeah. so important. And those are yeah. the most powerful athletes. So Dave, I have a question a little bit off the beaten path here, and I'll pose this to you as well, PJ. So uh, look, I'm not a researcher. I'm not involved in research. I'm a personal trainer and a clinician in my office in New York City. So I'm curious about when you have a study like this. So I was PJ and I were once talking about this, just uh, conversation. And uh, I do have experience of being a songwriter, though. And my professional career is, isn't even as impressive as your professional football career. Um, <laughs> but as a songwriter, my my feeling was always like my job is to write the song and do it to make myself happy and, you know, the people I'm in a band with. And then once it's done, I don't feel like I have, you know, minus like the legal rights of like, payment or whatever like but the spiritual rights i guess i would say of the song they're no longer mine the song is what i think it is if i play it for my brother and he thinks it means this like to me i never felt like well you're not hearing it right like this is like he's entitled to his own interpretation so i'm curious when you have a study like this that becomes popular and actually seeds into like the public imagination to a, a you know fairly significant uh effect and pj to study a hop and stop test that was also popular if you have a specific desire for people to take the study and then apply it in a specific way or you also just feel like look my job is to do the study get it in the you know get it in a journal and then you know say la vie well um that certainly is my job and that's how i get promoted <laughs> to, uh, get it in a journal and get more than one in the journal and then to get a few citations as well. Um, but you're absolutely right. Um, once it's out there, it's up to people to be able to interpret it. And, you know, doing podcasts like these or, or writing reviews will certainly um, help the public in terms of my thoughts and interpretations and how it should be applied. But, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, that's for sure. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that could take this little piece of information that came out in 1993 and then apply it in different ways that I never thought of. And so hopefully it's, it's like a tree and I planted a seed and it grows and has branches and it can be applied to football players and tennis players and hockey players. And it can be applied, um, you know, in a rehabilitation setting, it can be applied, you know, another thing that's really important, you know, you probably can't tell, but I'm an old guy. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm. 60 I think I can commiserate with you on that one. <laughs> That's right. So I'm 63 years old, and I'm supposed to be slowing down according to physiology. Now mm -hmm. I am a lot slower than I was 40 years ago, but one of my, like, I don't play golf. I don't even think golf's a sport. You know, it's not <laughs> a sport if you're sitting on a cart and then you go on this cart and then you hit something and you sit on the cart again and you go and hit something again. And smoke There's a cigar no in between. Yeah, so I don't. I I barely even play doubles tennis because you do too much standing around. My goal when I'm playing tennis these days is to explode because mm -hmm. I know at 63 years old my neuromuscular system is on the downfall, and if I end up like a lot of 63 year olds decide, oh, I'm getting too old now. I should stop playing singles tennis. I should go out and get on a cart and play golf or, you know, whatever, um, 
my goal is to be as explosive as possible until I'm thrown in a casket because mm-hmm. I want to be able to still go out there. I play against 16 year old junior tennis players and still kick some of their asses. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's part of my, of course, my competitive nature, but it's part of me still wanting to be able to uh, be an athlete. Mm-hmm. And whether you're an NFL football player, tennis player, hockey player, or you're a 63 year old ex athlete, you should still be doing actions that make you explode, you know, explosive contractions mm-hmm. to keep that neuromuscular system firing at a high rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. <clears throat> and, you know, look, if we can take some of the research that's out there and interpret it in meaningful ways and then ask questions, I mean, that's the beauty of research. And, and I'm a researcher and I don't have as many publications as you, but I have a few out there. And what we do is we look at research that other people do yours, for example, and I may just ask, well, what if I did it this way? And then create a legitimate question and follow through in a legitimate manner. And whatever the outcome is, it is. I mean, let's not make it up. Let's not create pseudoscience where it's really a marketing effort and we're going to create the result that we want. Let's leave it to real science and live with the outcomes, assuming that we do the work right. And then we'll start to get some answers to these questions that we're posing. A lot of people, on the other hand, they'll take something like your study or many other studies that are out there. They'll read the abstract, they'll interpret it the way they want, and then they just go run and do stuff with it. Now, it may still work. It may not work. Who knows? And I think part of Gigi's question too, because he asked me the same question, is do I feel a sense of ownership over the body of work that I've created? And you know the answer is no, because if I wanted it to be proprietary, if I wanted it to be my own work, then I would never have published it in the first place. So as soon as I get it out in the public domain, it becomes public property. Um, you know, other than the copyright, you know, laws that you know the journals own, but it's out there, and so there's nothing that I could do, and I'm not going to try to protect it. I'm just going to continue to do the good work, and I think that's the way that this should go. Um, before yeah, people, we get people, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, I was just, I was just going to add, and, and people should build on your work. So again, my typical study, 1990, this one in 1993, used university age students. So right. I just mentioned that, you know, old guys like me should be doing as well. So the next researchers coming along should look at different populations. They should mm-hmm. look at different durations. They should look at different intensities. You know, there's, mm-hmm. you, you read one study. And you can go 10 years by looking at different aspects of that study and changing, uh, you know, a variable at a time. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so this has been really interesting, but there is one thing I would like to talk about. Uh, it's something that has been rattling around in my brain. And I, I was hoping you could weigh in on this because you mentioned the specificity concept and we talked about specificity of velocity, right? So we get strong at or below the speeds at which we're, Uh, training, but not necessarily at greater speeds. But there's another type of specificity that a lot of people sort of adhere to, and that's specificity of motion, thinking that in order for something to be effective, it has to absolutely specifically replicate the movement that you are training for. Now, there were a couple of studies that I saw that were really interesting to me, and they were both baseball studies. So they were looking at uh, bat velocity in baseball. And one of them, which was done in 2007, it's by Szymanski. And I don't know if you're familiar with these, and we probably should have shared these with you in advance, but I think I can explain it in a way that will give you the spirit of where this question's coming from. So they were training two groups of people, one, a traditional strength training group. So we're talking about regular strength training exercises that we would see in a gym, squats, bench press, rows, things like that. And then a second group did the same training, but they also did ballistic medicine ball rotation exercises, right? So there are two groups. And when they looked at the change in bat velocity, they found that the first group, the the first group did not have improvements in bat velocity, just doing strength training, as did the second group, which included the medicine ball torso rotations. So their conclusion was that the addition of this rotational movement with the medicine ball was specific enough to the activity that it improved the velocity of the bat. Okay. There was a second study that was done a little bit earlier, and they also did two groups. One group did traditional weight training, 
leg press, leg curl, leg extension, lat pull down, but in a slow and controlled way. And another group did the exact same exercises, but in a high speed ballistic way. And what they found was that the second group had significant increases in bat velocity and the first group did it. And so it led me to think, here's my punchline here, that maybe it's not the movement that we have to be specific about, but the velocity is really the critical factor that has to be specific. So in the first study, the traditional strength training group did not do ballistic movements. They did slower movements. So the medicine ball may have been a rotational exercise, but the real key characteristic of it was that it was ballistic. So I'll stop there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was, I was guessing the results as you're going through and uh, fortunately I was right. Um, so, Fortunately so, for me too, because that's my premise. <laughs> so um, what, what I see is a, um, uh, like a, a staircase and, and we're moving from uh, a very generalized movement to very specific movements. So the very generalized movement, uh, as they did in those two studies, would be just general uh, traditional uh, resistance training. And so there's so many different aspects that we can add. So obviously, if we're going to uh, do a high bat velocity, we need high speed. So traditional resistance training, just like my Lou Ferrigno story, isn't going to do that for you. So adding velocity, whether it's the intent or the actual movement or rotational movement with a medicine ball, is going to add to your repertoire and it's going to improve you there. But I would suggest that those people, if they'd never hit a, and never played baseball before, they they wouldn't be any better at that bat because they wouldn't have had the technical skills to um, to move a bat as you should. So again, we, sh we, we move from traditional and get a base of strength. Then we move to higher velocities. Then we have to start moving to the, the skill itself. Again, teaching a person how to actually move that bat in a, in a proper plane and the follow through so they don't injure themselves. And as we get closer and closer to the, the season, we start adding more and more components of motor control in order to, to build upon the strength that we had, the velocity that we had, and now the motor control that we have. So now we can hit a whole bunch of home runs. So Dave, I'm curious about your perspective on this. PJ and I have spoken about this also on an, on an earlier podcast. And it, it's my feeling. So I consider myself a strength and conditioning coach. And I know how to swing a baseball bat, but uh, minus you know, someone that's in over a like fifth grade little league, I, I don't feel that I'm an adequate coach to really teach the fundamental skill of hitting and fielding. And so it's my opinion that in the strength and conditioning setting, in the controlled environment as much as we can, that's where we work on like rate of tension development, strength, power, you know, building the substrates necessary to perform these things. And then to me, not that it's like legally inappropriate, but sort of just fundamentally inappropriate to what my real skill set is. To me, then I hand them off to someone that is qualified. So now that I've helped them acquire the ingredients that they need in order to be able to be able to hit a ball effectively, then I hand them off to the skill coach. And to me, I, I see a, a direct, I feel like best practices are that if you have the availability to do so, that's how you would do it. You would parse out the skill training to the person qualified to do the skill training, and you, you would parse out the strength and conditioning training to the person qualified to do that. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So like I say, it's a progression. And so in that study um, that to have the uh, medicine ball rotation, that's one step closer to a baseball bat swing. Because in a baseball bat swing, you've got to rotate your trunk. So right. we, we, we move to, to that part. Now, if, if the strength and conditioning coach has played a little bit of, uh, of baseball, then maybe he could take a stick or a bat and have the individual attach that onto a elastic band and just start doing some uh, explosive intent type of movements, but not do the full swing. And you're not going to give them you know, particular uh, instructions about um, you know where their hands you know should exactly be etc cetera, etc cetera. but that Just could be the next a basic form as opposed Very to living, basic. yeah 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 not so trying to even so visualize you, hitting a ball and yeah so so you went from the trunk rotation now you've added a bit of shoulder rotation and so from there then maybe now the next step is they go back it's now baseball season they go back to the coach and then the coach works on the 
the intricacies of, of the uh, of the whole motion, but you've built up a progression for that individual to get them to that uh, that foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really great approach, and and I'm glad you put it that way because, you know, some trainers would look at it and say, well, if that's not replicating the movement, then it's a waste of time, right? So, you know, I had a conversation with a basketball strength and conditioning coach, and and I was going to show him a leg press machine. He said, I'm not doing that. I said, well, why aren't you doing it? He said, because my players play standing up. They don't play sitting down or reclined in a leg press machine. I said, yeah, but what if I could improve your power, just your raw power on a leg press machine? What if I could get your their power level up so that we could increase their vertical jump height through other means of practice, but the power development would occur on that device? Would that have any value to you? And he said, well, sure. Well, now you can use it. Now you have a reason to use a device like this. So I think what happens is it's kind of like the all or none principle. You either do it all or you don't do it at all. And what you're recommending here, which is so valuable in this conversation, is there is no right and wrong. There's a there's a big gray area and there's a progression to get from one point to another in a logical, sequential way that's going to benefit people as opposed to looking at something and saying, now we're going to throw that away. We don't throw it away. We just figure out how we're using it and make it work more effectively for the objective that we have. Yeah. In your, in your example there, if we had an individual that hadn't, um, you know, lifted, uh, didn't have a lot of experience lifting weights, um, you know, start them off in the leg press, where it's, it's stable, it's safe. Uh, again, they could uh, explode into the, into the, um, into the foot pads. From there, I might move them into a Smith machine. Now they're mm-hmm. standing up and it's more, it's closer to what you do in a vertical jump and have them, explode in a smith machine and then from there now we move to a uh, a, a, a traditional squat that's uh, you know free weights and now you got more instability involved so again it's the progression that's important and each each aspect that can contribute in, in uh, some way thanks dave you know that's a great approach to the problem that we presented we've really enjoyed your insights and hopefully our listeners can go away truly enlightened by this whole discussion so with that We're going to wrap up this episode of Fitness for Consumption. Gigi? So, hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. So, look, we know you have a lot of options. Just about everyone on the planet now has a podcast. So we really do appreciate you uh, spending time with us and listening to what we have. So we hope you've enjoyed the podcast and you're finding value in some of the concepts we're exploring. So, look, let's keep the conversation going. And in order for that to happen, we need to hear from you. So we'd love for you to reach out to us on our social media platforms. So you can find us on Instagram at Fitness for Consumption and on Twitter at Fitness for Consumption as well. So we hope to hear from you soon.